You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of So You Want to Be a Writer. You're here with Valerie Coote, that's me, and I'm here with Alison Tate. Hello, Alison. Hello, Valerie. How nice to be here with you today. (laughs) What have you been? I'm I'm practicing for my, you know, when I have to do all my radio interviews when my book comes out. Do you like it? I'm very good. You've got it. Yeah. Nice, (laughs) nice radio voice. Um, So, anywho, okay. What have have you been, Val? What have you been up to this week? Uh, Well, this week I have been chasing procrasty puppy around the backyard uh, as discussed it's been we've had our first week at home together and it's it's been a whole new reality for me um, and I've also been working on book three of the Mapmaker Chronicle series and excitingly enough I'm also working on getting the website together for that so I'm hoping that that will be ready to go next week which is a bit exciting wow mm, can't ex- wait no neither can I will it have maps in it um, at this stage, it will be a fairly straightforward book website, but I have great plans to put some map links and all sorts of different things on it. So I'm looking forward to you know developing it as time goes by. Mm. Well, I mm. have been. Uh, well, last week you may remember that I you know went out for the first time in ages to a yes. restaurant. Well, um, seemed to I've opened the floodgates. Went out to another restaurant this week. Um, at, Pilu in uh, Freshwater, which was very nice. And But more importantly, I caught up with my journalist friend Katrina and we had a long four-hour lunch discussing all things, you know, associated with the world of publishing and journalism and our friends and all of that. So, yeah, it was a really good catch-up and gossip. Four-hour lunch. I know. It, That's very 1980s of you, Val. I know. It is, really? isn't it? Yeah, bring back the 80s, I Bring say. back the 80s. I only managed to get, like, I think I got – one year of working in journalism in, in the 80s at the end and then it was all over. So I really feel like I missed out. Mm, I, I really know. do because by the time the 90s rolled around, we had a recession and that was the end of it. <laughs> exactly. And I went through uni during that time and here I was looking forward to all these amazing, you know, perks and corporate long lunches and but by, by, by the time I got out, it was too late. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Anyway. Anything. So let's see what's been happening in the world of blogging and publishing and writing this week. Um I came across a great story. Uh, it's called Unbroken Breaks Through. I Ooh. bet the sub had it, you know, a great story. Oh, about yeah, that's fun. There's fun to be had there. But basically, it's about an author called Melody Grace, also known as Abby McDonald, who, you know, has been doing fairly well, <clears throat> being traditionally p- published in her, you know, regular adult and young adult titles from publishers like Random House and that sort of thing. But then she decided to self-publish, kind of like a chick-lit, you know, popular women's fiction, a little bit sexy, uh, new adult romance called Unbroken. 
And uh, so it's interesting. She's made the she's made the decision to try this as a self published novel, and mm. it's gone on to sell over two hundred thousand copies worldwide, and has hit the USA Today bestseller list and the Barnes and Noble ebook charts. So she says that she did all of this with for an investment of less than $300. Wow. Yeah. So it's great to hear of these publishing success stories when, you know, you can see that uh, if you do self-publish, it can work. But, you know, before everyone gets too excited, I do want to point out that she is an experienced author and she's had nine traditional pub, traditionally published books. So she has had some experience as to, you know, knowing what works and what doesn't and all that sort of stuff. So don't kind of think that your first ever published ebook is going to sell 200,000 copies unless you've got a pretty major strategy behind it. But, you know, yeah, good stuff. Well, it's an interesting st- little story to have a read just to, to see what her strategy was because she says here like she may have allocated less than $300 but she put in a lot of elbow grease yes. and I think that's the thing that, um, I mean, elbow grease can be incredibly costly in terms of time, mm. um, particularly for a first-time author because, as you say, she she had experience, she knew what she was doing and that makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, and one thing she does say is there's a difference between self-publishing and self-publishing well. You Mm. want your book to be as professional as possible, so think about hiring editors, publicists or designers if your skills aren't in that area. So very important. Mm, Definitely. But another story that's kind of cute and a little bit interesting um, that has also, you know, been the result of the online world is some a couple of months ago, you may have heard of a 25-year-old um, One Direction fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, even that 25-year-old One Direction fan makes me go, really? Right. <laughs> Anyway, her name's Anna Todd, and she wrote some One Direction fan fiction. Right. Yes, and it was called After, and she put it on Wattpad. We mentioned Wattpad last week as one of the you know new tools of people to get their work out there. And um, it got 800 million reads. <laughs> That's amazing. That <laughs> is just, honestly, I just can't even get my head around that number. That's amazing. <laughs> So, um, not only 800 million reads, she got a uh, publishing deal out of it, a traditional publishing deal. But it seems that, you know, the world of One Directioners can be a little bit fickle because now there's a, there's a trending um, hashtag, suspend Anna Jones – Todd. Anna Todd, yes. Yeah. So, so I don't yeah. know why they've, they've got they, – they've suspended Anna Todd um, – to uh, because they don't like the fact that the way of the way the book portrays Harry Styles, the central character, mm. as a womanizer. <gasps> Heaven forbid! Heaven forbid! And apparently incorporates themes of domestic violence. I haven't read it, so I can't. I don't know um, how much of that is in there. But uh, yeah, they're getting a bit ex- a bit excited about this. Well, I yeah. Look, I mean, you know, the Twitter. Um, can be a very difficult place for authors in that, in this sort of area, or even to you know anyone. I mean, I remember when Justin Bieber was dating Selena Gomez, and and mm. they were they were hammering her on Twitter because you know she was stealing Justin from them. I don't think they'd <laughs> care so much now, but even so, like I, I'm loving Harry is an Angel as the 
between a handoff for, for somebody, you know, and they, they don't want him <laughs> portrayed as a womanizer. So, well, look, you know what? They always say that any publicity is good publicity. So this can only, you know, make people more interested in who Anna Todd is and what she's done, as far yes. as I can see, okay. if she can stand it. That's right. If not, she mm. can just write another uh, fan fiction and get another 800 million readers. <laughs> Only $800 million to go with. Exactly, exactly. Um, Another link that um, I came across this uh, week, which I thought, you know, is particularly relevant to those people who are interested in freelance writing in terms of, you know, magazine writing and freelance, you know, not novels, but articles and that sort of thing, was five ways to find freelance writing jobs on Twitter. Ah, the good side of Twitter. Yes, the good side of Twitter. I want to ask you, and it's got a few, you know, useful tips and we'll put the link in the show notes, but I want to ask you whether you have ever gotten a job through Twitter or used Twitter, you know, in that way. Um, No, not personally, but what I do do is I, if I see, I do see a lot of opportunities on Twitter Mm. um, and I will always retweet them to my, to my followers and things like that, because I think that that networking aspect of Twitter is a fantastic way to, to pick up, um, you know, to see where the opportunities are. And I mean, I follow Rachel's List and I follow Source Bottle and I follow all those sorts of um, Australian ones that, that will often have information about, uh, you know, potential jobs or potential, um, when I say jobs, I mean permanent jobs or potential, um, art, um, you know, casual work, etc. for writers. And I will always retweet those because I think that spreading the word about that sort of stuff is really important. And I think that that's what a lot of people do. So it is a great way to see what's going on out there. Um, and also I follow... Um, I follow lots. I mean, I just think one of the great uses for Twitter is to follow people within your industry and that way Mm. you do know what's happening. You do see the job opportunities first and you do see I need someone to write this or I need someone to write that or, you know, the job boards. Um, If if you're, um, you know, actively seeking work, the job boards can be really, really useful as well. Um, Have you ever? Um, I also, you know, I find out through, I find out about a lot of job opportunities through Twitter and um, I'm not in the, I'm not in a situation where I need a job, (laughs) but I also, you know, forward them on to my followers and my community. But I, I got a question the other day from somebody who said, you know, how can I use Twitter to, you know, market myself as a copywriter? And, um, and I you know, had a look at her Twitter stream and I said, well, for a start, perhaps you could tweet about the fact that you do copywriting or, you know, tweet about some of the things that you are doing in relation to copywriting. So maybe you can tweet about something you're editing or tweet about, you know, the fact that you're, you're meeting with a client on a copywriting job or something like that. But importantly, I said to her, look at your freaking bio. Your bio says mother and lover of coffee. At no point does it say that you're a copywriter. copywriter. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it's really quite simple. So if you you want jobs as a copywriter, you need to put yourself out there as a copywriter and make sure your bio says so. And that bio, I just on that, that bio is so important because you know I I am a am a great follower back on Twitter. I really I like to to talk to people. So if people follow me, I will always have a look at their bio, and um and I will always you know like have a connection with those people if I think if they look like they're 
the kind of people I want to talk to. If you've got no bio mm. or if your bio is so scant that I, that you look like spam, then mm. I will not follow you back. And no. I think it's – so I think it's really, really important to have a look at your bio. And, yes, be clever and be funny and be all those things. But as you say, if you – want copywriting work, then say you're a copywriter. Exactly, exactly. Mm. <clears throat> Moving on to something very different. Yes. As I was browsing the interwebs, I came across a blog called The Nailosaurus and uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, it was – there was a post there called How to Start a Nail Blog. Right. And I thought, oh, my God, so specific. But obviously yeah. there are people out there who are really into nails. Um, you know, we know Christina who, who does nail romance. Um, yes. But it, it got me thinking about, you know, some of the more bizarre, really niche things that people decide to blog about. I mean, have you come across some really niche things? Oh, look, I don't know how niche you'd call it. Well, probably it is niche, but one of my favourite um, little blogs that I like to go visit, and it may not be so little anymore, so I'm looking at it now and it's looking very joujois, but um, it's a blog, an Australian blog called The Plummet, P-L-U-M-B-E-T-T-E, and it's a blog written by a female plumber. Oh, and cool. she, I know, and it's fantastic. She writes a really funny little blog. She basically talks about plumbing and shares her experiences of being a plumber and being a mother. And I wow. just love the whole idea of it. You know, she'll write about what it's like working at heights, and she'll write about you know <laughs> renovation tips. And she'll she's got a great little um, post in there at the moment about tapware and how to choose your tapware. I mean, you know, <laughs> like it's it's specific but it's a it's a great little blog and i think it's well well worth having a look so yeah no that's that would be one of my favorite niche ones what about you you oh got my any god i love that i'm going isn't to have it a great yeah. go and have a look the plummet i just think it's awesome <laughs> um well you know i come across some and some stick into my head one that's um i met a lady she works for one of the most conservative banks in australia and she you know worked in i can't remember what department but you know in finance and she was saying that in her off hours, she spends her every waking hour just being obsessed about her blog and blogging about South Indian Bollywood movies. Oh, I know that is specific, okay. really specific to yeah. the point where, and she lives in Melbourne, but to the point where she's now become one of the world's experts in South Indian Bollywood movies. And some South Indian Bollywood movie directors have come to her to get, you know, um, reviews and comments to put on their DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. But there's another one that I liked. Okay, I stumbled across. I don't know, even know how. That's called Dogs Eating Pasta. And oh, all okay. it is is just photos of dogs eating pasta. So that's another bizarre that's pretty, niche. One. That's pretty specific, yeah. <laughs> what else is happening in the world? Well, um, we've just recently had National Bookshop Day and yes. I thought it was worth um, – sharing this little this post on the ABC News site that said that basically Australian bookstores are going strong. Great. Which is an, yes, which given the dire predictions, uh, as they say in the story, in 2011, then Small Business Minister Nick Sherry made the claim that bookstores would no longer exist in Australia by 2016. And that was a really helpful comment, wasn't it, Nick? Thanks, Nick, for that. Mm. That was awesome. Um, and, of course, um, you know, there is no doubt that the, the impact of online sales is being, uh, you know, from online retailers is being felt. But the basic upshot of this story, the Australian Booksellers Association is saying that, you know, that people are coming back to bookshops and they're coming back to books. And one of the reasons for it is that young people 
are, are really into books. Like the yeah. quality and popularity of youth literature, YA, middle grade, probably new adult, judging by our friend's unbroken yeah. success. Um, <laughs> and, and, our push, and, and our One Direction. And our One Direction. Are still, you know, like it's still um, – are still driving, you know, book sales in bookshops. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, I do, my, we have two great bookshops here in my small South Coast town and um, I we do our best to, you know, keep them both going really. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Me and the boys, we often visit. They love a good visit to the bookshop. So, um, But, yeah, so I, you know, get in there and, and buy your books at your local bookshop and there's nothing better than having a chat with them about what's new and what yeah. they recommend and that's what you get in a bookshop that you don't get online and I think it's really worth um, fostering those relationships. Definitely and that's great news and, yes. and yeah, I think it's um, fantastic. So, stuff that, Nick. Yeah, anyway. keep them going. <laughs> Let's prove him wrong, people. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I bought a book. Yay. <laughs> this week. Well done. Called The H Factor. As in, you know, H, like the letter H, or in some people might say the H factor. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at the cover of the book, it's, and we'll put a, you know, a picture of the cover, it's actually the H factor, but with the letter H at the front, sort of erased ever so slightly so that you can just barely see it. And, you know, there has been much discussion over whether the correct word is H or H for the Mm. letter H, I say H, and um, this uh, book has been written by Susan Butler, the editor of Macquarie Dictionary, Um, and I'm keen to get stuck into it because I love all of these discussions on, you know, why words have become the way they have. Um, But yes, what do you say? You say H, do you? I'm an H-er, but I'm also like, I'm assuming she will also cover in there the great debate over whether it's ahistoric or anhistoric because Um, that's another, you know, like it uh, there, there's a bit of a you kind of have to say historic, whereas if you say an historic, you don't need the H yes. so or the H. So I think it's um my boys both say H. Oh, they do, really? but I say H. So I don't know. Like wow. it's maybe it's a generational thing. Yes, I'm hearing that that a lot of the kids at schools are now saying H. Um, but that a lot of the kids at school are also saying use. So oh. which we we most certainly do not go around doing that in no, these parts. No. But um, use is very much becoming part of the vernacular, which worries me greatly. But anyway, yes. a friend of mine was taught, um, you know, cutlery, as in your forks and spoons and knives, that yes. is your top kitchen drawer. Yes. Um, she insists to me that it's cutlery. No, because it's spelt. That can way. I say no? <laughs> yeah, can, can we say. just can we just put the kibosh on that one right now? Oh uh, yeah, I say no all the time, and she just won't have a bar of it. She thinks that I'm, you know. Does she not know it's illiterate. spelled T L E R Y? Well, you know, like I don't know, cutlery. That's what she says. Anyway. Okay, well, you know what? <laughs> Let's we'll just leave that right. Yeah, there. we'll just leave that. Right. <laughs> Um, we'll drop that like a hot spoon. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's happening in the world of blogs this week? Oh, well, I found a great little blog post this week um, via Peg Fitzpatrick, who um, is a fantastic, she's a US social media type um, and she often shares amazing, you know, put it this way, if she shares a link, you know it's going to be a good post. Anyway, she shared a link to a blog called mycrazygoodlife.com and it's nine apps that every blogger needs. So it's kind of like if you're blogging on the run 
as we so often are these days with our iPads and our iPhones and our i whatevers. Um, it's nine apps that you need to have on your phone and it's beyond sort of Facebook, Twitter, which obviously like most people are going to have anyway. Um, she's got some re, um, sort of reposting apps. There's uh, pages, managers. There's a little a little app called Pixit, which I didn't know about, um, which is where if you have a few images you want to share, you can use Pixstitch on your device to actually make the collage and share them all at once, which I think is great. Um, and she suggests the Pinterest app, but I have to say that I have tried the Pinterest app and I don't like it. I would actually prefer to use it via the web browser on my iPad, which is saying something. But anyway, um, so I guess that's the other thing too with with a lot of these things. You have to try them out and see what works for you. But she's since gone on to update the post, like since it was first um, put up a few days ago. She's now updated it with MailChimp, Buffer, Stumble upon a whole range of different ones. So if you're looking for ways to make your blogging easier on the run, then this is a great post to have a look at. Yeah, the Instagram app, it was called Insta Repost and um, I haven't tried that but the one I use is called Regram ah. uh, and I find that quite easy to use in case in case anyone's looking for a regramming Instagram. Oh, app. there you go. Look at mm. that. You're all over it. <laughs> You're so tech savvy now. There you know. Oh. <laughs> Except sometimes when I can't, you know, open a Word not. document. But anyway, um, so who is our writer in residence this week? Oh, our writer in residence this week is very exciting. Um, I spoke to Michael Robotham, who is an Australian author of international best-selling yep. crime massive. novels. Massive. And we had a fantastic chat. And following, uh, following my conversation with Leanne Moriarty last week, where I was shocked to discover that she doesn't plot at all and mm. simply starts with an opening sentence, I was even more shocked to discover how Michael Robotham, who writes incredibly intricate, well-constructed um, crime novels, goes about writing his books. And you should have a listen to this because it's definitely worth, um, worth thinking about. Michael Robotham is the author of nine best-selling, international best-selling psychological thrillers translated into 22 languages, published in more than 50 countries and winners of a host of awards. His 10th book, Life or Death, came out in Australia in July and asked the question, why would a man escape from prison the day before he's due to be released? Welcome, Michael. Hello, how are you? So... Tell us a little bit about life or death. Obviously, you're not going to answer that question about why a man would do that. But where did the idea come from? About 19, almost 20 years ago, I read a paragraph in the newspaper about um, a guy who escaped from prison uh, almost on the eve of his release. He's actually, in real life, his name was Tony Lanigan. He was a convicted killer, a turned model prisoner, and he escaped from the Malabar Training Centre here in Sydney. And, um, and the funniest part about the story, the real-life story, it's not the one that I've written, but the real-life story was that two years earlier he'd escaped, just before he was due to be released. He'd gone up to the Blue Mountains, he'd spent a night under the stars, and the next day he waved down a police car and gave himself up. So when he escaped the second time, nobody bothered putting out a missing persons report because they thought, well, he'll be back tomorrow. You know, he's, just, <laughs> he's gone walkabout again. And, of course, Tony Lanningham has never been seen since. He vanished off the face of the earth 19 years ago. He is probably Australia's least most wanted man, but it is a complete mystery about whatever happened to him. How fantastic. 
So that that was the real story. I mean, I I I didn't know any of that um, until you know much more recently in terms of that background because all I remember is the paragraph, and I kept thinking for about why would you do it? Why would you escape having served such? I mean, he'd spent most of his life in jail, his adult life in jail. This guy, why would you escape just before you were due to be released? And it took me about ten years to come up with a reason for it, um, and then it's probably took me nine nine books before I thought I had the skill to to tell it probably. Okay, so I'm really fascinated by that. I'm going to have to go and buy the book now, which is, you know, obviously it's a fantastic hook. I love it. But, you know, having turned it over in your head for 20 years, you know, why did you decide that now's the time? Like what what is it in your skills base that has suddenly come to the fore that made you think I can do this? Well, I think it, it, several things happen. Um um, one is because you know I knew I was going to. When you write a series like I've done, it, and you know when you, when you go back to the same, case, there's a comfort factor in that. There's also a, a potential for burnout, but there's a comfort comfort factor in going back to similar territory. Um, and I've always tried to mix up my books. It's been like with my third novel, The Night Fairy. I told it from the point of view of a 28 year old woman entirely in the first person, which was a huge challenge. And I always like to test myself. Uh, and the idea that I was going to set my new book not in the UK, but to set it in in America, in Texas, completely foreign sort of location to me, completely new cast of characters, um, that took you know a completely different voice. You know that whole idea of the, that southern voice that took an that took a lot of courage to start with, and a lot of research, and also I think a lot of skill. You know and you got to be a confident in your position, a, a, your ability to write, and also, in my case, confident that my that I thought my readers would come with me. You know that they would be willing to to have me write something different and come with me. Okay, well, that was a question I was going to ask you because, given the popularity of your character Joe O'Loughlin, who I personally love, um, is it difficult to decide to leave him out of a novel? Like in the sense of, you know, you, as you say, you've created a whole new cast of characters, you've gone to a completely different location. And, I mean, I, I have to confess that when I read the blurb for this, I, there was a small twinge of disappointment that it wasn't Joe. Um, so, you know, no, do you no, know there, are, <laughs> there are people weep, weeping into their Weetabix. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wasn't that person. I could be that person, but I wasn't that person. But do you worry that readers are more attached to him as a character than to you as a writer, if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and, and there's good reason. I must admit, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled with the way my publishers around the world have uh, embraced life with it. But I must admit, when I told them, when I told, you know, these are publishers, you know, that have done very well on the back of me doing well, you know, when you say to them, look, I'm going to, I'm going to leave Joe Lock alone and do something else, you can see that they put on this very pained smile and in the back of their mind they're going, damn, you know, um, <laughs> and, and, and there's plenty of evidence. You don't have to look at, you know, people like, like a very good friend of mine is Val McDermott, you know, the Scottish crime writer. Yes. And, and, and whenever Val writes a Tony Hill book, you know, um, her sales figures soar. And when she writes a standalone, she struggles to get the same sort of figures. So, you know, but that's not the only reason you write, obviously, because of, of sales. So you, you simply have to sort of suck that up at times. And, and for me, that's why life or death is so important to me because I want to be able to write other books and I want my readers to just want to read anything I write, not just a Joe book. And so, you know, the jury will be out. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I mean, the reaction around the world from my publishers has been that this is the 
this is the best book that I've ever written. I, I think it's the best book I've ever written. Um, but we'll wait and see whether the, the diehard Joe and Vincent fans um, are willing to embrace uh, Audie Palmer to the same degree. Well, I'm willing to give him a try based on that question. Like, why would a man escape from prison? I think you've come up with an awesome hook to to make me want to find out. So let's, we'll, you know, we'll go with that then, shall we? <laughs> I think the other thing that's important for me, it's interesting because, you know, in terms of why I think it's the best book I've, uh, I've written, you know, because it, it is a love story. At the, at the heart of the book, it's a tragic love story as well as all those elements of a thriller that, you know, people expect. But every writer... Well, most writers, I shouldn't speak for everyone, most writers will tell you that the book that they have in their mind and in their heart is rarely what they get on the page. They can never quite match on the page what they envisaged in their head. And I'm the same, okay, but of all the books I've done, and this is number 10, this is the one that's come closest. I've come closest to getting, I feel, to getting on the page exactly what I had in my mind when I set out. That must Um, feel great for you. It feels tremendous. It's a huge, you know, thing too, because so often you, you, you know, as proud as you can be of a book, you just realise that in your head it was going to be better. Yeah. So to get closer is, um, yeah, no, it's hugely satisfying. So you were a journalist and then a ghostwriter. How do you think that those two things have added to your success as a novelist? Like you've kind of like built. It's like you've taken a step by step approach into fiction almost. No, it's true. Well, I mean, and that's. And that was planned, in a sense, because I wanted to be a writer from about the age of 12. And I'm growing up in very small country towns in Australia, I felt as though I had nothing to write about. Um, and journalism was going to be a profession that would give me the material, you know. And so I became right. a journalist to gather material so I could become a novelist. And, uh, and it took me all around the world, and it taught me how to, you know... It's that classic thing where, you know, people will... <laughs> You know, I think one of the worst pieces of advice that can be given to a writer is to write what you know, because mm-hmm. you know, because if it happens that you don't know a great deal, then you've got nothing to write about. You know, <laughs> so what, what you know, if so, what you should write about is not what you know, but what what fascinates you, because that that passion will be what drives you to go and research and find out the material you need to write. So it isn't sort of a case of writing what you know, but writing what fascinates you but when I was starting out I, I felt as I knew nothing I'm an idyllic childhood small country towns you know Mark Twain has done all those plots and um, I, I thought I've got to experience the world so that journalism was, was important in that sense for, for giving me incredible breadth of knowledge you know because I, I did police rounds and international affairs and all, I mean there were so many areas of journalism that I covered that it sort of um, uh, um, that gave me a broad sort of knowledge and then ghostwriting taught me the discipline of actually spending a long period of time on a single story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, it taught me how to capture a voice. That ev- yeah. you know, every single person I worked with had a unique voice and, and I had to capture that perfectly so that no one could recognise my fingerprints on their autobiographies. That's yeah. It's interesting you say that. Like I, I have this vision of of you then sort of investigating all these things and then and then writing your novels. But you don't actually write like that, do you? You I read somewhere that you actually don't plot. No, I don't. I don't plot. I mean, all all, all I do is sort of come up with a premise. You know, um, you know, and normally and often the hook for the for the book is you know a real life event, like the paragraph that I read all those years ago for Life or Death. Each of the novels is seated in 
in, I never use the word inspired, um, but they're seated in a real life event or a case. Right. You know, it'd be something like you take this um, Baden-Powell trial up in, in Queensland at the moment, oh, the guy's yes. just been convicted. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. And I can see in my head, you know, that idea of the, you know, the high-functioning psychopath that he was. And I just tick over and thinking, you know, there's a great book. There's a great thriller <laughs> in there, you know. Do you know what I mean? There are, there are, there are, that's the sort of thing that you'll pick up on. And, um, and, uh, but invariably, I'll just create the characters and create the dilemma uh, and then let the whole thing unfold. Um, and so it does mean throwing a tremendous amount of material away um, right. at times, but it also means it's incredibly organic. And, you know, when I when I come in from my office and I say to my wife, you would not believe what happened today, excitedly, you know, I'm surprised as what the reader is when something has happened. I'm thinking, oh, you know, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying the characters tell me what to write because that would make me, insane um, <laughs> hearing voices yes. um, but um, they don't always do as they're told the characters um, but um, but that's the process where that little eureka moment you know that comes to you where you suddenly think of a twist or a hook or something um, and it is tremendously exciting so know, you don't always know who did it before you start basically no I, I, when I got to towards the end of the book like say you're sorry which was um, a couple of books ago. The you know there, it could have been any one of six people, and oh. I, I had a favourite. I had someone in the back of my mind that, as I was writing, probably halfway through, I thought, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if I could if that could be the person that did it? But I kept thinking, but it's probably too big a leap. I probably can't Get can't make that wicked. Would seem too outlandish or whatever. Um, and the reader wouldn't buy it, and it wasn't until the penultimate chapter when I'd set... So I set it up where it could have been any one of about six people, and it was only when I got to that penultimate chapter that I thought, you know, I think I can make it work. Let's see what it looks like. And uh, and um, and so that's what normally happens, you know. And sometimes, it's funny, I'll, about halfway through, I'll, I'll, I'll think of an ending, I'll sort of envision a possible ending, and then it may be that I get there, or it may be that... I can't reach it, but I'll think of a, a, an alternative or a better one before wow. I get there. Yeah. So are you doing a lot of redrafting then? Like are you blasting out a first draft to see what's possible and then redrafting? Uh, I, never I never sort of blast out. I mean, the first draft is so solid in terms of it might take me eight months to write a first, you know, eight, nine months to write a first draft. And each rewrite after that might only take a couple of weeks. Um, wow. But it'll be quite strong. But what will happen is, so, you know, my, my agent once said this to me, that writing a novel, it's a bit like if you imagine building a car, okay? And I spend probably six months working on the first quarter of the book. And that's like building the chassis, you know, building right. a really, really solid, the, the wheels and the chassis. And once you have the engine, the engine that drives it, and once you have those in place, you can customise that car and make it look any way you like, but you need to have that fundamental engine and the and the solid chassis underneath it all and so i spend most of my but the last quarter of the book or third of the book often i can write in a month because everything is in place you know all right. you know or I, I can see an ending it's come to me all the characters they're all the you know the all of that and then you know the last third comes quickly but the first third of the book is you know i've just thrown away it's funny earlier this year i did forty thousand words and threw it threw it away and started oh. a whole new book you know um wow 
because I just couldn't. It just it just wasn't a strong enough structure for it to to take the novel. You know, is that something that you might use later? That forty thousand words, or is that just gone? Yeah, I thought about. You know what it was? It was there was a there there was a villain in one of my early books called Shatter, and. Um, there was a villain who, at the end of that book, I mean, probably Joe Lockman's sort of nemesis, the greatest, you know, yep. mind of, that he ever had to sort of confront. And at the end of that, that book, you know, this person, you know, was still alive. And I suddenly thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to bring him back, you know, yep. and for Joe to have to face this guy again? And so, and, you know, I published and everyone just was absolutely, this is for the next book, you know, uh, and were absolutely thrilled about this idea that I could bring this villain back. But 40,000 words in, I realized I was writing the same book again. You know, the oh, same. Okay. It was the same motivations of this guy, and it was the same. And it was it was basically going to be a rerun of the first the first battle between Joe and this guy. And I thought, well, that can't work. I refuse to write the same book twice. <laughs> and um, you know, it's, I've seen too many other writers fall into that trap of looking like they're just posting it in, saying you know, and uh, and um, and so I threw it and, and thought to myself, unless I can think of a really novel plot way of bringing this guy back, where it's a completely different scenario. It's not just him trying to sort of outwit Joe, you know. Um, it can't work. So, so maybe can, maybe that idea will come to you in the middle of the night. Yeah, and that it, might it may well. I may well think of. Yeah, it may well be that I can think. You know, um, that I can find a way of, of using him again. You know, because so, I mean, I envisage it. It's a bit like you know what was done with Thomas Harris and and uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. The idea that you know. So, you know, he can sort of, you know, come back again, you know, and but it has to be a completely different sort of scenario. Yes, you know, which it was in that case. So yeah. um, with regards to your writing then, I know that you're very busy, like we've just been discussing um, off podcast, your schedule for the for the next com- you know coming months and you've got writers' festivals and you've got interviews and you've got all sorts of stuff going on. Um, how often do you write? When do you fit the writing in? Every day. Every day, <laughs> okay. Every day. You know, I will write seven days a week. Um, uh, I just did a just did a big interview for the Australian magazine, and the one thing that the the profile for a big profile, one thing the profile kept saying to me, but you must have some other hobby. There must be something you do other than write. You must do something. And I'm going, no. My wife, and he interviewed my wife, saying, "Come on, t- tell me what else he does when he's not writing." And she said, "Look," and he said, "That's all he does." <laughs> You must be such a fun guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's what she did say. She said I was much more interesting when I was a ghostwriter because at least I had gossip about famous people, whereas now, you know, I'm just a boring novelist. Um, but um, but no, it's it's you know it, it's a discipline. It, I mean, you got to understand. It's what I love. I love writing. I'm not saying that there aren't incredibly difficult days, and you know, my kids can sort of. You know, when they approach the cabana of cruelty, they're sort of looking to see whether, you know, whether what sort of mood I'm in, because whether it's been a good or a bad day. Um, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's what I do. And and, I, and even when I'm travelling, you know, I'll try to, and on tour, I'll try to write every day or rewrite, you know, be writing or rewriting. And the only time I'll, I'll give a day a miss, it, it might be, you know, if I... Yesterday I had to answer about 30 different lots of questionnaires for sort of online blogs and websites and all around the world for the new book, and that took whole, all day to do it, um, yep. and so I didn't get any writing done yesterday. Um, but I've started writing this morning, so I've done a few hours already. Wow. And, uh, and so you're obviously, um, like given that you you can take up to eight months to do a draft, you're obviously sort of editing as you go, are you? 
Yeah, I, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, in and doing all that sort of stuff. And and I agree that you know there are. You know what it is, and you've probably heard this term before. And it's a great. I think it's a great description that there are that there are pioneers and there are settlers when it comes to writing. You know, yeah. and the pioneers are the people that just charge forward, throw it down. You know, plant a flag, just charge forward, plant another flag. And they figure they can go back and build the settlements later, yep. you know. Um, and they just want to make sure they get the story down quickly, and then they go back and, and flesh it out. Uh, I'm more the settler. I will set up camp, and I'll get that chapter right, and then I'll explore a bit more, and I'll set up another camp, and I write that way. And um, and so yeah, so 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 I, it's not so much going back and. I suppose it going back and tweaking it suddenly if you come up with a great idea in chapter you know um, chapter fifteen but you realise that you're going to have to set it up earlier yeah. you'll go back ch- back to chapter three and you'll insert the information you need to make something work later um, it'll be more that style of thing. Okay, well it's obviously working. Like the story of your first novel, The Suspect, and how it came to be published is the kind of is the stuff of writerly dreams. You had the bidding war at London Book Fair on 117 pages and you hadn't even finished the manuscript. What kind of pressure did that put you under to deliver? Um, it was it was that mixture because, you know, as you say, it's, 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 it's a story that will either um, it will either inspire would-be writers or they'll hate me. I would hate <laughs> me if I wasn't me. Um, <laughs> the, um, it, it was a mixture of two things, I guess. I mean, on the one hand, it's like winning the lottery and you feel... I mean, enormously grateful that every dream you'd ever had, you know, of being a writer suddenly comes true, you know, in the space of sort of three hours of mad, wow. frenetic sort of bidding between, you know, publishers from all over the world. Um, um, and, and then, you know, w- within a couple of hours, though, the, the terror set in because, you know, I didn't even know it was a crime novel. I, it, I, it hadn't been plotted out. Um, it was, you know, less than a third of a book. Um, and uh, and all of these people had had bid for it, um, not asking me how it finished, not asking me what was going to happen next. They just, you know. And to me, it was like, you know, being I mentioned being backed into favouritism for the Melbourne Cup, never having run the two miles before, you know, <laughs> and having people back you with put enormous amounts of money behind you. And yeah. when you've never written, even though I'd written, you know, I'd, I'd finished. You know, I'd written 15 autobiographies for, for people as a ghostwriter. Yeah. So I, I knew, they knew I could deliver something, but I'd never written a novel before. And so um, that was scary. Um, that was that was quite a scary prospect, but, but hell, it's a hell of a lot less scary. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, I'm not going to say to you that I didn't want it to happen because, yeah. you know, it's nice when you've got enough money in the, you know, to know that you can actually write full-time and you're not trying to to um, deliver this thing to a deadline and do a full-time job, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're the people that I admire. I mean, most the vast majority of writers. People ask me who I admire most as among writers, and it's those people that write not just their first, but their second, their third, their fourth, whatever novel, you know, when they've worked a full day and put the kids to bed and read the bedtime yeah. stories, and yeah. you know, they're the people that I admire. Yeah, which is the reality for, as you say, for a lot of writers as well. Yeah, so many people say writing is hard. Writing's not hard. Boxing is hard. Raising a disabled child is hard. Yeah. You know, there are there are difficult days, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's um, there are a lot harder things out there than writing. So I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but 
what was the secret of this 117 pages, Michael? If I knew that, (laughs) if I knew that, I mean, that became the suspect. I mean, it had, I think, the suspect has a great opening chapter, you know, um, you know, where Joe Lachlan's on the roof of a hospital trying to talk a young cancer sufferer down who, who was sick of chemotherapy and has been told they have to do another round. And so it's, and, and, you know, in the first few pages, you get a great sense of Joe's sense of humor and humanity and, 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 um, and, uh, and it was sort of an, and even though that chapter has nothing to do with the latter, you know, the rest of the book, it's, it's, it doesn't set anything up other than introduce the character. Um, I think it captured the voice, you know, and so much of it is, if, you know, if I could give my greatest piece of advice to any writer other than to just keep writing and writing and writing would be, make them care yeah. make them care and I think for that opening 117 page people cared about Joe they really loved him as a character and they, and therefore you know they wanted to find out whether he could get out of this tremendous sort of you know um, dilemma that he was facing so where did he come from Joe like where the, the idea for, for Joe I mean yeah, um, just Joe the character I mean as you say he's a quite extraordinary character. He's memorable. He's you know delivered beautifully in the first chapter of that first novel for you. Um, did he just come to you as you were writing? Did he was he inspired by something? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the the idea of doing basing the novel on on a psychologist came through. I was very fortunate many years ago to to spend a lot of time with a man called Paul Britton, who was a forensic psychologist in the UK, and he was the he was the real life character that Cracker was based upon. That wonderful. Oh yeah. BBC series with Robbie Coltrane playing Fitz, the uh, the profiler, and um, and I spent a lot of time with Paul. And, and my fascination with the psychology of crime came from you know um, from from Paul and talking to him. And uh, and I guess when I decided to sit down and write a novel, and I thought, well, I never thought I'd use Joe Lockman again. He was he was the one I was going to write standalone novels. I was going to write one novel with Joe, and so I thought, okay. When, and I gave him early onset Parkinson's for two reasons. One, because I knew my main hero wasn't going to be a Jack Reacher, Jason Bourne, James Bond type right. hero who could outrun, yeah. you know, out, um, you know, outwomanize, out whatever, out drink, you know, everyone else. He was, um, you know, he was going to be a vulnerable human being. And I thought there's a tragic irony in, in giving someone a brilliant mind but having putting it in a crumbling body. And so I, I created that character and I thought I'd never use him again. I thought my publishers wouldn't want me to use him again. I thought, who'd want a hero that had Parkinson's, you know? Um, and uh, and it was only really, I mean, I, I compromised to have him as a lesser character in, in the second novel. So only really with Shatter, which was four novels in, that I, I came up with a scenario or an idea where it, I thought, oh, Joe's the perfect character to, to tell this story. That right. I brought him back. and yeah. And then... I only brought him back and believed for me because my wife said that I could not leave him alone unless I sorted out his private life. You know, I, you know. <laughs> which is true. You know, and so it's almost like you know she just keeps insisting and says, "I'm not. You, you cannot until you so, until he's happy. I yeah. cannot leave Joe until he's happy." Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, and people keep asking me, "Oh, look, when when are you going to make Joe happy?" And I said, "Well, that could be the last book. You really want it to be the last book?" <laughs> he may never be happy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, given that you're writing essentially a book a year, aren't you? Approximately yes. a book a year, yeah. So, have you ever experienced a time where you thought, "What am I going to write about next?" Or, or 
have you got? Oh no, I can tell you now. I can tell you now. I think it's um, every time I finish a book, and the last few weeks are always a mad scramble. You know, it's you know in terms of a mad rush and and. Every time I finish, I will go into my wife and say, that's it. Every decent idea. I don't have a drawer full of ideas. I mean, this oh, you is life or death. No, life or death was a real no- novel sort of idea. That, I mean, the idea that that had been kicking around was very unusual because I don't have a drawer full of ideas. And every time I finish a book, I'm convinced that that's it. I will never write again. Every decent description, every decent one-liner, every decent idea I've ever had gone. I'm an empty shell. I'm just a hollow man. And that's the end of my writing career. And I will wander around the house, and then about two hours later, I'll say to to my wife, "I'm just going to go into my office and clean up all the paper on the floor and the post-it notes." And about two hours after that, she'll come looking for me, and I'll be at the computer, and she'll go, "What's happened?" She said, and I'll say, "I've just thought of an idea." <laughs> yeah. And and I, I and people don't believe me, but I swear to God, I will deliver. I'll press send on a book, and within two hours, be writing the next one. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, all, all, all researching it, you know, wow. or, or, or online, having come up with an idea and then thinking, okay, first of all, first of all mission number one, find out that no one's done it before you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, certainly, I'm, I'll never forget, before I ever wrote a novel, I remember contacting my agent saying, I've got this great idea, and it's this female anthropologist, and she's <laughs> going to solve crimes. And he said, and he said to me, Kathy Reich, and I've gone, who? She's going, Kathy Reich, she's done that already. And I've gone, bugger. <laughs> uh, oh, well, uh, start again. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you're also, I noticed you're on Facebook and Twitter. You've got a very glamorous new website, which is quite fabulous, and we'll put the, um, the address for that and your Facebook and Twitter accounts into our show notes. But how do you, like, when you started out sort of 10 years ago or so, there wasn't really this social media thing that there is now. Like, how do you feel about the role of that in an author's life today? Oh, it's vital, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, to, to, it is, to a degree, I re, you know, quite personally, I resent it, yeah. you know. I mean, in a perfect world, and, and I would love a situation where you simply as a writer had to write the book and it would succeed or fail on the quality of the book. Yeah. You know, if it's a good book, it will be well-received, and sell well, and if it's not so good, it won't be. But... The reality of life now is that the very best of books can get overlooked or forgotten, um, and it becomes, you know, and social media, and, you know, with the traditional publishers doing less and less touring and having less and less money for traditional advertising, more and more of the weight of marketing and promotion is falling upon the writer, which, yeah. again, I, have, I slightly resent. I can understand it, you know, Particularly when you sit in a marketing campaign with a publisher, I'm very fortunate that you know, they do big marketing campaigns. But even when you sit and they tell you the marketing campaign and they're rattling off, okay, well we're going to have you guest blog for this, 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 and we're going to have you do this, 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 and we want you to write a, a piece for 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 this magazine, and and then and you stop them and say, hold on, hold on, that's what I'm doing to market my book. What, what are, are you, you doing? doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it does feel at times as though. Um, that you know, it's is, and I know there is value added in publishing. You know that really good, a really good marketing and promotion teams in terms of artwork and getting you, getting the buzz going and getting the and 
particularly if you're going to get into that bestseller status, they need to you need to have the sort of um, you know the the big W's and the targets and these people buying large numbers of copies and and there's no self-published author that's ever going to get into into those sorts of big supermarket no, no. chains and things like that. So this is what publishers can do for you. Um, but um, but you know that sort of self-promotion and you know and again I, I slightly I, I slightly you know, I always cringe that whole idea of having a, you know, even a website with my face on it. Just feel like, you know, I'm of a generation where you just look at it. I hate looking at my website. It's a big picture of me on it. I'm going, well, there is, oh, yes. you know. <laughs> but, you you okay. look lovely. Does that I, help? I look like a kitten killer. Let's face it, I do. <laughs> well, you are, a, you are a crime writer. You can hardly know. Yeah, you know yeah, that whole you. idea of, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, you're, you're constantly sort of self-promoting and plugging... Well, you shouldn't really. I mean, you should be using Twitter to... I think I, I was once quoted that you know, about 70% of your Twitter message should be about something other than your book or your, you know, your, your doing this because otherwise it just reads too much like you're just um, a marketing vehicle rather than uh, making people feel as though, you know, you're the little window into your life and what you're reading and what you're watching and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So do you spend much time on it? Not as much as I should. Although my publishers, I'm always, I'm always really flattered when they say, "Oh, you're so good with social media." And I mean, really, I feel, I feel as though I post about one tweet every three or four days, and 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 you know, and sometimes I go weeks, and, and I'm terrible with my website newsletters. You know, I always promise I'll do one a month, and I end up doing two a year. <laughs> oh, you know, that's enough, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I have this thing again with what it's, you know, the writing. I mean. The writing process is a bit like the famous, you know, von Bismarck quote about making sausages. You don't really want to know what goes into them, yeah. you know. And it's like with the writing process, you know, I, it, it, the magic is in not letting people know too much about the process. And also, it's boring. I mean, you don't want to give people the plot to your latest book. So, no. you know, so what are you going to, day to day, you can't really tell them that much about what you're writing. You know, even my friends, you know, they say to me, oh, what are you working on? I say, well, you know, it's another book, but I don't really want to tell them too much. Because I think no, one no. of the great failings of, 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 um, of writers, actually, and people who want to write, is they leave all their energy, you know, um, they leave it out there because they want to tell people about the book they want to write and they spend months or weeks or days talking about this book they want to write and they should actually spend all that energy actually writing the thing. Yes. So uh, would that be one of your top tips for aspiring authors to actually yeah, write the book rather be. than yeah, talking don't, about it? Yeah, don't, don't, just, don't just tell everyone and talk about it and discuss it with people and whatever. Actually sit down and write it. You know, it's, uh, it's that thing about... Um, and I always feel you know, there are some people, and there are some very celebrated books that have actually uh, that that have actually risen out of the workshopping process. I mean, things like you know, um, things like um, the Kite Runner, or, oh, yeah. or um, Curious Incident, the Dog in the Night. You know, both of those books arose out of sort of writing workshops and programs and things like that. And there are some writers that really need that sort of community and that workshopping and that feedback but um i think too many writers actually use it as uh you know do another workshop and therefore uh you know as a, as a survival you know after this next workshop i'll be ready to start the novel type thing yeah you know um whereas you know so not everyone 
but I think some should just buy a huge drum of bum glue and smear their feet with this glue and sit that down and just you know, smoke that sucker just right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate your talking to us and um, sharing some of your great insights. I can't wait to read your new book. Very excited. And I'm also going to go and sign up for your newsletter so that I can get my once every six months (laughs) update on what you're doing. Um, So um, good luck with all your festivals and all the things you've got coming up. and, And thank you once again. Thank you. It was a great interview with Michael. Oh, wasn't it? But how fascinating is it that he does not plot his oh. novels out? How I, do you do that? I don't how know. How can you possibly write sort of an, an intricate mystery not knowing who did it until the second last chapter? Yeah. I don't understand how. I mean, even for me, that's pretty crazy. Like it's, yeah, it's some, sometimes with some of the crime and thriller authors that I read, I do wonder sometimes that their, their head can be a scary place to be. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, you've sort of you've got to start to think to yourself, well, if you can imagine all this stuff, I know. what's going on back there? <laughs> oh, it's horrible. I know. Oh, anyway. But anyway, yes. Anywho, our working writers tip this week um, is actually uh, something that people have asked us, and we thought that we would put it into you know written form as well as discuss it because so many people um, you know like the full explanation. But basically, somebody said to us, "Help! I pitched a story to an editor, and they accepted my idea, but now all my case studies have fallen through. What should oh. I do? What's your answer?" <laughs> Oh, cry? That would be the first thing I'd do because really that's it's a bad situation, that. But I have to say that I think that the best way to um, make sure this doesn't happen is through a little bit of forward planning. So I, I know a lot of people have, um, through, the, through my tutoring work with the Writer Centre, they say, oh, you know, like I want to do this story but, you know, the person wants to be anonymous. Well, you know what? I'm mm. sorry but you cannot go into – a pitching situation with three case studies who all want their names changed or don't want a photo taken or want to be anonymous, you may get lucky and have an editor who will let you have one of those. And that's generally speaking, once you've got an established relationship with the editor, you might be able to say, look, I've got this great story. I've got three case studies, but this one, which I think is really, really important to the story, has asked that their name be changed. And you may get away with that, but you will not get away with three ever. And for the most part, editors want photographs. So when you are setting up your story, you need to say to the case studies, um, this is the situation and, you know, you will need to be willing to be named and photographed. Yeah. And if they say no to that, find someone else. Straight up. That's Um, exactly right. Don't you think? I think that's the way forward. And I also think it's not a bad idea when you're doing um, case study stories to, you know, find a few, choose the best three, but have a backup if you can. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. I think that the biggest, I think what I'm seeing a little bit of, and I hope that I see less of it, is people pitching stories where they don't have their case studies lined up and just thinking that they're going to find sometimes quite obscure case studies. Yeah. Like, fair enough, if you've got, you know, a fairly general um, requirement, like, you know, people who love their dogs. Um, But if it's, you know, people who love their three-legged dogs while they ride a unicycle, 
backwards, then yeah. it's they're really specific things and you sure as hell better have those case studies in the bag before yeah. you pitch it to the editor. And the ones, you know, one, the ones that are the, se- the sexiest ideas are usually the hardest case studies to find. You know, mm-hmm. so you might think you want you want to have a discussion with three, like, well, we'll like, using sexiest in the literal term, mm-hmm. you want to have, you know, three couples who will discuss their sex lives yeah. in Sunday life with a readership of one million. Yeah. You know, you are going to have to to go through a lot of people to find three willing to do that, and not only three willing to do it, three couples, but three who have different enough stories to make your story interesting. Because that's yes. the thing, you've got to. It's not just about oh, I've got three. They have to be three diverse experiences on the one subject to yep. make this to make the story worthwhile. So, just you know, if you're going to pitch a story like that have those people lined up ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's mm-hmm. why the editor's saying yes, because it's they actually know it's really hard to get those case studies. Absolutely. And if you're yeah. willing to run around and spend the six months doing it, then awesome. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway, we had a good old chat this week, but it come we're now at the end of our podcast. So what are what you coming what what's coming up for you this week? Uh, well this week I'm hoping to put another ten thousand words onto my manuscript. So I'm really focusing very hard on getting the words done this week. You're going to write 10,000 this week? Oh, at least I hope so. Yeah. Wow. That's my plan. Um, But you know what? I say that and people go, oh, my God. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's kind of 1,500 a day. You know, break it down seven days a week, 1,500 words a day. And 1,500 words a day is, is more than doable for me um, as long as I have an hour and a, an hour aside or so to do it. Um, and it is a matter I am – I am. I mean, Michael Robotham speaks in his um, – spoke in his interview about people who are pioneers and people who are settlers. And I'm very much a pioneer style of writer. I like to blast forward and get it down and then I then I go back and I layer and I rework and I take out the bits that don't work. Um, that's just the way I work. Um, he's a settler. He likes to go, you know, go a little bit further in the story, settle, work around a little bit, then go a little bit more, mm. different styles completely. But I think... Um, yeah, I, I ten thousand words is is my aim for the week. So if you if you want to follow my journey, I'm actually Facebooking it. I have a hashtag called Write a Book with Al, and each day I'm putting my word count on um on my Facebook page, and I'm finding it quite interesting. I have a, a loyal band of followers who are joining in with me, oh, and are also posting their word counts and things. So, um yeah, if you want to come along and and join our happy campaign, fantastic. Mm. Uh, what are you doing? I am having breakfast with Kathy Lett. Oh, um, well, there yes. you go. That's something you don't do every week. No. <laughs> well, I must admit, with Kathy Lett and probably about a thousand other women. <laughs> oh, I was going to say. <laughs> but it sounded good, didn't it? So it won't be a four-hour breakfast with Kathy Lett. No, no, no. The 80s, so right. Kathy okay. Lett is actually, you know, touring Australia and she's having uh, – she's having um, – uh, breakfast uh, with business chicks, and um, it's going to be fun because yeah. you know I found I Kathy Let I have been reading her ever since well puberty blues, and yep. of course that was set in the Shire where I'm from, and set in Sylvania High, which my parents after puberty blues came out refused to send me because of Kathy Let. Oh. So she indirectly changed the direction of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, are they worried about the panel vans and the Vaseline? Exactly, absolutely worried about the panel vans and the Vaseline and the Seabreeze Hotel. A, you're such a panel van girl. Yeah, now. exactly. I'm such a Cronulla chick. But anyway, um, and uh, I remember, you know, growing up, and because uh, I worked in a newsagent for almost my whole high school, you know, years, you know, as a part-time job. And that's where my love of magazines grew and writing for magazines. I remember reading Kathy Lett in um, Dolly in those days and just thinking, you know, what a cool turn of phrase even back then. You know, she was very famous for her puns. Um, so all these years later, I'm very keen to um, – to to be going to you know see her talk yeah fantastic that'll be amazing I'm very very sad I can't be there but unfortunately from the south coast to Sydney for breakfast yes a little, little bit hard a little bit hard <laughs> we'll miss you Al <laughs> I'm sure you'll notice my absence with those thousands of other friends exactly <laughs> okay so um yes I best get back to Procrasty Pop who will okay. be waiting patiently for me probably chewing the entire backyard up as we speak. And if people want to find you, Al, where can they find you? They will find me at alisontate.com. And uh, they'll find me at valeriecoo.com. They'll find the show notes. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast. And also feel free to email us your questions, uh, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And it's been great to talk to you. So until next time, uh, have a great week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.